that, that's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. I'm Ayman Mohideen. Alex has the night off. It was just four months into his presidency and eight days after he fired FBI Director James Comey that Donald Trump learned that Robert Mueller had been appointed special counsel to investigate him, his campaign and Russian interference in the 2016 election. And Trump reportedly told close advisors at the time, quote, oh, my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. I'm effed. Now, while Trump panicked over the news, those who wanted to see an indictment against the then president, well, they welcomed it and they welcomed it with open arms. Many saw Robert Mueller as their judicial knight in shining armor. Finally, someone who would hold Trump to account. But after nearly two years, after 37 indictments and after Trump doing everything in his power to discredit the special counsel after all of that, well, you know how this one ends. Trump, for lack of a better term, he got off. And a large part of that narrative of Trump being vindicated, well, that was set when Trump's close ally and attorney general at the time, Bill Barr, effectively kneecapped the report before it was published. He downplayed its findings, telling the public that Mueller found nothing, despite the report being one of the most damning indictments of a president ever. It documented no fewer than 10 instances where Trump obstructed justice. And the Mueller probe ultimately resulted in no recommendations of charges for the then president. Now today, the former president holds the unique title of being the subject of not one, but two special counsel investigations. Today's announcement by Attorney General Merrick Garland to appoint a special counsel to oversee the two sprawling criminal investigations into the former president Well, as you can imagine, it was met with a more mixed reaction. There are some who fear the appointment will delay the investigations, those, of course, being Trump's handling of classified White House documents and his role in efforts to overturn the 2020 election, including inciting that violent mob on January the 6th. Now, there are others who see it as essentially a capitulation in the face of Trump's early decision to launch a 2024 campaign. But nobody really knows ultimately what will happen here. The one thing we do know for sure is that Attorney General Merrick Garland believes the facts demanded a special counsel. Listen. The Department of Justice has long recognized that in certain extraordinary cases, it is in the public interest to appoint a special prosecutor to independently manage an investigation and prosecution. Based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. I strongly believe that the normal processes of this department can handle all investigations with integrity. And I also believe that appointing a special counsel at this time is the right thing to do. The extraordinary circumstances presented here demand it. 
Now, despite Garland's efforts to erase even the appearance of a conflict of interest, Trump and his allies today immediately began slamming the appointment. Trump tonight called the appointment a witch hunt at an event at Mar-a-Lago. The corrupt and highly political Justice Department just appointed a super radical left special counsel. This is a rigged deal, just as the 2020 election was rigged. Meanwhile, his allies in right wing media, well, they immediately started attacking Garland's choice as well. Jack Smith, a highly respected prosecutor in his own right and DOJ veteran, will take over the day to day management of both investigations. But and it's important to be clear here. The final decision of whether or not to that Donald Trump will face charges in those two criminal cases, that final decision in both of those cases will ultimately still be up to Mayor Garland. So what does this all mean for the two Justice Department's investigations going forward? How did we get here? Where do we go from here? Joining me now is Mary McCord, former top official in the Justice Department's National Security Division. Uh, It's great to have you with us, Uh, Mary. I'd like to start with uh, Jack Smith here for a moment. He will oversee both investigations, even though they are not technically related. And some might question whether that is a significant caseload. These are two sprawling investigations. Does that make sense to you or were you surprised by that decision? Well, I think that in many ways it's the what Merrick Garland referred to as the first investigation, the investigation into whether there was any unlawful interference in the transfer of presidential power or the certification of votes after the 2020 election. In many ways, I think that's the investigation that may have driven this decision more than the Mar-a-Lago investigation. That one is inherently more political by nature. We're talking about investigating the former president while running for president against the incumbent president um, who ran against him the last time. So I think, you know, in terms of the extraordinary circumstances particularly created when President Trump announced, former President Trump announced that he would be running, are are part of what drove this. Um, I think then once doing it, you know, having uh, Jack Smith also be special counsel for the Mar-a-Lago investigation, which at least based on public reporting seems to be much further along. It's a much more discreet investigation. It's not as sprawling. Um, So I think it makes sense at that point to have him lead both. But you're right. He's going to be a very, very busy man. Would you um, would you expect a charging decision on either case to be made separate and apart from one another or would they be made in tandem? Can you anticipate a scenario in which there are potential charges filed in one and not both? I can. I I think that whatever reaches a decision point first, when all of the facts and evidence have been, uh, you know, tracked down, when the illegal analysis has been finished and when the uh, attorneys who are now assigned to work with the special counsel feel like they are ready to make a charging decision, uh, I think then that case, whichever one it is, and I I do expect that that decision will come earlier in the Mar-a-Lago case, I think they'll make the decision at that time and move forward, because um, the the agents investigating and the prosecutors working on these two cases, for the most part, are going to be separate, right? So the the only real common individual to this is is going to be Jack Smith himself. And so there's really no reason to tie them together. They certainly wouldn't be tried together if there were indictments in both. Um, they'd They'd be separate. In any in any court case. And so there's really no reason to link them. 
There has been some criticism of Merrick Garland that perhaps he's doing everything too much by the book to avoid this political perception. And Trump and his allies, uh, as we've seen tonight, they've already started attacking Jack Smith. Why do all of this to avoid the appearance of conflict, the, the attempt to make sure that nothing appears to be politicized when Republicans um, want to politicize this? Republicans will say there is, uh, you know, politics in everything that Merrick Garland is doing. Well, it's interesting because some of the coverage you were just showing at the top of the hour, you know, it almost seems like the former president is trying to use this to make it more political when the reason for the decision was to actually take the decision making, and I'll come back to that, out of the hands of political appointees at the Department of Justice and put that ju decision making in the hands of a career prosecutor who never was a politically appointed political appointee. That's Jack Smith. It's absolutely wrong for former President Trump to accuse him of being a radical leftist liberal prosecutor. Um, there's no basis for that. And everyone involved in this investigation now, uh, both investigations under Jack Smith, are career prosecutors. So the people were politically appointed by the president, by President Biden. They will not be part of this chain of decision making, with one exception, which you already alluded to. At the at the conclusion of the special counsel's investigation, he will make a report uh, recommending charges or recommending not to bring charges. And that report, the attorney general can accept or he can disagree with um, certain recommendations. But he really, under the special counsel regulations, should not be refusing a recommendation by the special counsel unless he thinks it is inappropriate or unwarranted. So even though, yes, you are right, ultimately this will go to the attorney general who is a politically appoint, political appointee, he is subject to those regulations, which really create the independence here. And he is not to overrule the special counsel unless unwarranted or inappropriate. And then he must report any overruling to Congress. So there's, there's a fair bit of independence built into those special counsel regulations. And I expect the attorney general will abide them to the T. Uh, speaking of the fact that these are two different investigations, you've got the investigation into January 6th. That has been going on for 22 months. There's a lot of stuff that has been dug up as a result of uh, the congressional investigation into it. The Mar-a-Lago investigation, it, it's much newer. It's relatively recent, if you will, but is generally seen as more of an easier case to bring forward. How does that change the work of the special counsel? How will they go about dividing up the resources for each when you think of what is alleged in the January 6th uh, investigation, the, the cover up, the potential coup or the alleged coup and the January 6th, which is the uh, sorry, the November um, document removal? Yeah. So I think, you know, part of this comes back to the fact that these investigations are ongoing. So they already have teams of investigators at the FBI and prosecutors working on these cases, as well as other law enforcement partners. So really what's going to happen is it's just going to be a shift of those teams to be under Jack Smith, as opposed to be reporting up through the chains they've been reporting up through. So the Mar-a-Lago investigation has been reporting up through the National Security Division and Assistant Attorney General 
General Matt Olson, supervised by the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco and the Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland. The January 6th related investigations has been handled, you know, coming up through the criminal division um, and and the, and Ken Polite, the Assistant Attorney General there. So they already have their own teams and they don't have to worry about creating new teams. And I will also point out that when it comes to the investigation regarding January 6th, the, the Attorney General made clear that all of the investigation and prosecution of people who were actually physically present and participating in the attack on the Capitol, those will remain invest, being investigated and prosecuted by the U.S. Attorney in the District of Columbia, who's been the one who's brought the almost 900 cases so far, many of which have already resolved through guilty pleas or through trials. And every trial has resulted, uh, every jury trial has resulted in convictions. Um, so that will remain there. What's What the special counsel will be taking over is the investigation that works its way higher up. Remember that Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general, announced many months ago that they were looking into the fraudulent elector scheme, the scheme to send fake slates of electors, slates of electors for Donald Trump, who did not win the popular vote in several swing states, send those up to the vice president as part of the scheme to have the vice president either accept those instead of the legitimate electoral ballots or to just reject them entirely and send this back to the, to the states to, for essentially a redo. So that that scheme is tied into then who who much who higher up within Trump's orbit was part of promoting that was part of trying to convince the uh, the former president to pressure Vice President Pence into taking the action that was desired there and potentially any other um, conspiratorial type activity that might have taken place. All right. Uh, Mary McCord, former top official in the Justice Department's National Security Division. Thank you so much uh, for your time and insights tonight. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, I want to bring into the conversation Katie Benner, reporter covering the Justice Department for The New York Times. Katie, it's great to have uh, you with us on such a fast moving day. I want to quote some of your reporting from uh, earlier tonight. You write in part, quote, Attorney General Merrick Garland has long said that the Justice Department could handle any investigation of former President Donald Trump by strictly following the the rule of law. But Trump upended Garland's approach by formally announcing his 2024 White House run. And the ongoing investigation was recast as an investigation by President Biden's Justice Department into a top political rival, a perceived conflict of interest that Garland could not overcome. Is Merrick Garland letting Donald Trump dictate the terms of these investigations? I think that Merrick Garland would say that what he's doing is he's following the regulations that are before him as the attorney general. And if you read the statute that that oversees special counsels, it says that there are two conditions that need to be met in order for the attorney general to appoint a special counsel. One is that there is a conflict of interest for the department. And two, it's that it's in the public interest. And so he felt that both of those things were met in this instance, in part because we're not just talking about President Biden's political rival in the upcoming presidential election. One of the questions before the Justice Department speaks directly to the legitimacy of the 2020 election in which Biden and Trump fought very hard for a win. And as we know, President Biden won, but President Trump has continued to say that that was an illegitimate win. He has continued to sort of foment that, 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 you know, that falsehood. However, part of what will be litigated in this investigation, at least the January 6th piece of that, is 
what, what, whether or not those claims were criminal. And those claims speak directly to the legitimacy of the current president. It was just too complicated and too much for Garland. He felt that the, that the special counsel regulations had to be invoked. Did you get a sense from your sources that there was any disagreement or conversation at all within the Justice Department or senior officials about whether or not to appoint a special counsel was the right approach? Ultimately, the decision is Garland's. It's the attorney general who comes to this conclusion. What's so interesting is that long before uh, we had any inkling of what Garland was going to do, there were reports in CNN and other publications and then the New York Times that there were people at lower levels of the Justice Department who were starting to talk about whether or not they would need to appoint a special counsel simply because it became clearer and clearer that Trump would run. Now, the conversation happening with Garland and his closest aides was happening independent of what we had reported out. But my sense is that one, the decision's ultimately his, but two, that nobody disagreed. Basically, in this very tight circle of his closest advisors, people read this, the, the special counsel statute. They looked at the situation before them. They looked at the state of the investigation, and they felt that this was the choice that needed to be made. Donald Trump is um, already responding tonight, slamming the special counsel and saying he will not partake in the special counsel's investigation. How will that play out here? Have you gotten any sense of um, whether or not, based on your reporting, that is something that um, the special counsel or his team or the Department of Justice intends to pursue? I mean, I don't really think that matters to the special counsel. I think it was pretty clear that Donald Trump wasn't going to participate in the ongoing criminal investigations of him that were taking place at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. and at the National Security Division here in Washington. So that's not a particularly new posture. It's simply Donald Trump is very, very good, I think, at using whatever current events come his way and spinning them to make it look like he is both under siege and under fire and that he is taking a proactive stance against these oppressive forces within uh, the federal government, you know, which he would describe as the deep state. So whether or not he would cooperate, I think that has, is not really a big change from from what we would have expected from him should there be no special counsel. I know it's still early on in this, but can you tell us about the kinds of resources Jack Smith will be given here to do his job? He is simultaneously investigating two different incidences, probably with uh, what would be needed a lot of resources. Yeah. So as Mary pointed out earlier, he's really going to be working with the existing teams. The really important thing about having a special counsel is that all of the politically appointed people, the people who uh, President Biden chose to run various divisions of the Justice Department, that they are removed from the investigation. And it is the career men and women of the department who have been working on the, these cases who will continue likely in some form or fashion to work with Jack. And you'll also see you know, same investigators and investigative teams. He can bring in outside counselors or prosecutors. He could pull people from other U.S. attorney's offices, people from other U.S. attorney's offices, which we've seen in previous special counsel investigations, including Durham and Mueller. They could raise their hands and say that they want to help and they could be approved to, to detail over. But he will already have quite a bit of manpower. And then he has the ability to ask the attorney general for more resources and money as needed. All right. Kenny Benner, reporter covering the Justice Department for The New York Times. Thank you very much for your time tonight. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. All right. We got much more ahead tonight. Just who is Jack Smith, the new special counsel? What can his extensive career so far tell us about what to expect in his new role? Matt Miller, former Chief Justice Department spokesperson under President Obama, will join me next to discuss that and more. And it's only been three weeks since Elon Musk took over Twitter, but boy, it already seems to be falling apart. That's ahead.
that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. To a large number of people in Kosovo, this court represents a last chance for justice for a vast number of victims. Unfortunately, to others, this court is viewed as something to be distrusted and therefore attacked. Jack Smith, the prosecutor who Attorney General Merrick Garland just appointed a special counsel to investigate former President Donald Trump. That was him a year ago uh, prosecuting literal war crimes at the International Criminal Court. Now, Smith used to be uh, or is used to be rather uh, being distrusted and attacked for his work. That's not new for him. In fact, he started his career in 1994 as an assistant district attorney in the New York DA's office. Uh, There he prosecuted everything from gang murders to civil rights violation. And then in 2008, uh, Smith got what he described as a dream job working at the International Criminal Court. And it was there that he oversaw investigations into government officials, militia members, war crimes, genocide, you name it. That kind of highly politically sensitive, tough work was what Jack Smith sought out. He ended up coming back to the U.S. after he landed another dream job as head of the Justice Department's Public Integrity Unit. And since then, Smith has worked on a host of politically sensitive cases that have been brought a lot of criticism and pressure from both sides of the aisle. In fact, he investigated Democratic senators like John Edwards and Bob Menendez and Republican congressmen and politicians like Vern Buchanan and Richard Renzi. He successfully prosecuted former Republican governor of Virginia, Bob McDonnell, only to see that conviction vacated by the Supreme Court. But Smith's resume here, and it's important to note, is actually it's a bit of a double edged sword. You know, on the one hand, he has a long history of working on cases that have been politicized, and Trump and his allies will no doubt use that to try and hurt his credibility and paint him as biased. But then on the other hand, it means that Jack Smith has been in a lot of tough positions like this one before. When he took that public integrity unit job back in 2010, the New York Times asked Smith if he considered politics when bringing prosecutions forward. He answered that question by saying, if I were the sort of person who could be cowed, I would find another line of work. Joining us now is Matt Miller, former spokesman for the Justice Department during the Obama administration. Matt, thank you so much for being here. It is great to talk to you about this and more. You know, when reporting first broke earlier this month that the Justice Department uh, was considering a special counsel for these Trump cases, You tweeted out that was unnecessary, inadvisable, and hopefully not under serious consideration. Unfortunately, here we are, unnecessary, inadvisable, and hopefully not under serious consideration. Is that still how you feel today? 
it is. Look, I, I don't think this was necessary under the regulations. I do, I do think the attorney general's the attorney general is well intentioned here. I, I believe I know what he's trying to accomplish. I think he 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 made this choice because he can see the evidence in this case and knows where it's going and believes that a prosecution of of, of the former president, at least on the Mar-a-Lago case, is likely. Um, if you were going to decline prosecution, you don't really need a special prosecutor because there's no one who's going to question that uh, Merrick Garland was making a biased decision in trying in declining to bring a case against. Donald Trump. So I suspect he thinks this case is going to end in prosecution. And so tr- is trying to buttress that that prosecution in the public's eye by appointing a special prosecutor um, that will be seen to have integrity and independence uh, and not someone who is appointed by, by Joe Biden. Now, I, I do have concerns, but I think the attorney general at least is well-intentioned here. So if I'm reading uh, a little bit in between what you're saying, you're saying he, he is so confident that what the special prosecutor will see will lead him to recommend a prosecution that Merrick Garland has given himself this, uh, the appearance at least, of this non-political figure who could make that recommendation, giving it one more layer of confidence when a criminal charge is filed in either one of these cases. I think that's right, which is not at all to say that Jack Smith is a rubber stamp. I think he'll come in and look at the evidence and look at the law and make his own judgments. But I think that, you know, I, I can't imagine that the attorney general and the deputy attorney general are doing anything but supervising this case very closely already, um, reading, you know, re- reading through the case and being briefed on it in detail. Um, and they must know where this case is heading. I can tell you, but looking at the public evidence, it looks like a prosecution is likely. And we, of course, aren't privy to everything that they can see uh, as a result of the search warrants that, that they've executed. Um, but but I do have some concerns about the, the appointment. One, uh, the attorney general addressed to, to, today, there's the potential for delay. Now, he said that he's going to make sure or that he is confident uh, that there won't be any delay. And it's up to him, of course, to enforce that. But when you look at the political calendar um, and the way a prosecution that would be you know a year from indictment kind of interacts with the primary uh, election calendar, it's very clear that uh, this prosecution that is going to take place needs to go quickly. But then the other concern I have, and you already see it today in the reaction to this appointment, is that <clears throat> while the attorney general's intent is to depoliticize this case by by making this appointment, I actually worry that it that it further politici- politicizes mm. it. I think you know Donald Trump always benefits from turning everything into a circus, and the way not to join the circuit or the, the the way to stay out of the circus is to not buy a ticket. And so I think instead of elevating the stature of the or elevating the profile of the prosecutor that's bringing this case, it would have been better to just let, you know, regular line assistant U.S. attorneys continue to do their work and treat Donald Trump like everyone else is treated and not give him a foil to attack. That said, if this case is going to be brought in three months, we may look back and, and all of this you know, kind of gnashing of teeth by the, the former president, by Republicans in Congress will all have been for naught in, in any event. We know that Republicans, and we saw a little bit of this tonight, if not by name, but certainly by the position, which I suspect will by name grow in the coming days, weeks and months. Do you think that what we saw the Republicans use as a playbook against the, the Bob Mueller special counsel investigation a few years ago, do you think it was successful in attacking and undermining the Mueller probe? And do you think this will be used again to try and discredit Jack Smith? 
I think it was successful in raising doubts among the the you know 40 percent or 35 or 45 whatever it is the hardcore Trump people who watch Fox News and read conservative media and don't really aren't really going to believe that the former president broke the law no matter what the evidence says and so the playbook he ran against Bob Mueller was successful in convincing those people and I believe he could convince the same about Jack Smith or Merrick Garland or really anyone else but ultimately I think that's going to be irrelevant to the disposition of the case um, <clears throat> I think Republicans in Congress. We'll try to attack the Justice Department. We'll ask, uh, you know, we'll subpoena records and try to bring uh, people from the department in for interviews and try to interfere with this case. And I suspect the department, following longstanding precedent, will essentially tell them to go pound sand, that they have no business interfering with an ongoing uh, federal investigation. So I think the president will have political goals in trying to, to you know, use this investigation to strengthen his standing in the Republican Party and his strengthening, strengthen his standing with the, the primary uh, uh, electorate. But ultimately, it will have little bearing on what happens inside the Justice Department and on their decision whether to bring charges or not. All right. Matt Miller, former chief spokesman for the Justice Department during the Obama administration. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Matt. Greatly appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. All right, still ahead this hour. It hasn't even been a month since the world's richest man bought Twitter. Things aren't looking so good for Elon Musk's newest investment. Details next on the chaos at Twitter and why it is worrisome to the rest of us. Stay with us. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. All right, check this out. Um, this was the view outside Twitter headquarters last night, a projected scroll of phrases next to Elon Musk's name, phrases like supreme parasite, mediocre manchild, apartheid profiteer, and bankruptcy baby. Now, those insults appeared hours after Elon Musk's deadline for remaining employees to decide their fate, to commit to, quote, work extremely hardcore on Twitter 2.0, which apparently means long hours at high intensity or collect your three months of severance and leave the company. Now, he reportedly suspended everyone's access to the building until Monday while they made their decisions. And Fortune magazine reports that last night, as many as 1,200 of them opted to leave. And that includes critical engineers. So just over 2,000 staffers remain, and they are presumably working extremely hardcore to keep the platform from crumbling. Many now former employees doubt that they will be successful. As one former executive put it, quote, they will struggle just to keep 
the lights on. In fact, the site experienced outages in the U.S. today. We should note that many of the staffers on the team dedicated to preventing outages resigned yesterday. Already, Musk is begging some of the company's top talent to stay on. And early this morning, he emailed what remains of his engineering team saying, quote, anyone who can actually write software, please report to the 10th floor at 2 p.m. today. Thanks, Elon. Now, that left employees a little confused. You'll recall Musk previously told them they would not have access to the building returned until Monday. Now, the platform millions of us use in hanging on by a thread is hanging on by a thread, excuse me, as Musk tries to figure out how to avoid filing for bankruptcy. In fact, Musk announced a series of additional changes today, and they included things like deboosting negative tweets and arbitrarily reinstating some previously banned accounts without providing his reasoning or explanation. So far, that does not include the former president. But if Musk ever decides to bring Trump back, will he have any employees left to follow that order? Joining us now is Brandy Zadrajny, NBC News senior reporter who has been following every twist and turn of this story for us. Brandy, uh, thank you so much for being here tonight. So every day it seems this story just gets crazier and crazier and is moving quite rapidly. When Musk decided to restore the accounts of uh, comedian Kathy Griffin and Canadian podcaster Jordan Peterson and the right-leaning satire website Babylon B. He didn't really give a explanation or any logic or reasoning for it. He just did it arbitrarily, it seemed. And just a couple of hours ago, he created a Twitter poll asking followers if Trump should be reinstated. What does it mean for policy decisions, like which accounts are suspended and which are not, to be made by the whims of one man rather than clearly outlined as company policy? You just said it. You know, the problem with these moves is that every rule is, you know, sort of capriciously made by this billionaire. And, you know, he has called actually for a content moderation council. I'm not sure what that means, but whatever that does mean, it, it doesn't really matter because it's just him. He is acting like God, you know, seemingly with little thought about or care about um, the repercussions of these actions. And just to talk about the repercussions of these actions, it's really important to look at who he brought back today, right? And the people that he brought back, the Babylon Bee and Jordan Peterson and author, um, shows what his focus is right now. And that is to reverse policy on trans hate speech and harassment. That is seemingly allowed as of tonight with the reversal of these suspensions, right? Um, so because those accounts have been suspended for misgendering trans people. And that's all happening at a time when um, attacks and, and harassment against trans people on this platform and off is really as bad as it's ever been. And it's extending to their caregivers and allies. It's truly out of control. So the fact that this is one of the first um, reversals that he's making does say something about where his priorities lie. He also, Musk also announced that he would, um, quote, deboost and uh, demonetize negative and hate tweets. Uh, he did not provide his definition of a negative tweet. I think a lot of people online were asking him about what constitutes a negative tweet. Do we have any updates about what this means and how he will implement it with what is now a miniature staff? 
So those are both very good questions. I'm not sure what a negative tweet means. I think for any of us who spend any time on Twitter, if you if you're trying to deboost all the negative tweets, then Twitter is going to be um, a very quiet place. Um, but again, it, it it is it is so uh, it's it is capricious. It's at the whims of 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 his whims. And but the bigger portion, the bigger thing that you also raise is. What? How are they going to decide what's negative or what's hateful? Because he's gutted their entire trust and safety team. His trust and safety team leader um, quit earlier this week and just wrote an op-ed for the New York Times and basically said, you don't need a trust and safety department when all of the, the, the thinking that goes into policy is just whatever you feel like that day. And so, um, yeah, it's a really big problem. They have no way to moderate the platform. They were doing, honestly, a poor job before. And now it's just there's no way. Let me ask you really quickly about the outages. There were some reported today. Tech journalist Kara Swisher wrote that such outages are possible and used to happen all the time. She also advised people to be on guard for hacking, especially if they have any credit card information linked to their accounts. How should people prepare for Elon's Twitter 2.0? Yeah, I mean, um, the platform is not safe with Elon Musk at the helm. And that's not just me saying that that is experts from, you know, people in the media like Kara to privacy experts. They have lost um, all of the employees who used to be in charge of privacy, who used to be in charge of um, security. Those people are all gone. And, you know, I I do just want to say in terms of safety, it's not just, you know, our personal privacy and safety that we need to be concerned about. But um, Twitter is a place where, you know, it was the public square, especially for places outside the U.S., right? And those offices are gutted as well. The whole of Africa, um, most of Mexico, India. And so what happens to those places where those people rely on Twitter as a place to organize and advocate? It's just Twitter's become a much dangerous, much more dangerous platform in, in lots of ways. Yeah, I'm thinking of the safety of protesters in places like Iran and elsewhere who rely on it for safe and secure communication. We'll see what happens. Uh, Brandy Zidrajna, NBC News senior reporter, thank you so much for your time and insights tonight. Thank you. I still ahead tonight. U.S. intelligence services say Saudi Arabia's crown prince was responsible for the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. But now the U.S. government says MBS has immunity in a lawsuit that has been filed against him. What's with the turnaround? The Washington Post, Karen Atia, Khashoggi's former editor, joins us to react. After Washington Post journalist and U.S. resident Jamal Khashoggi was brutally tortured and killed inside the Saudi embassy in Turkey in 2018, the CIA said this. We assess that Saudi Arabia's crown prince Mohammed bin Salman approved an operation in Istanbul, Turkey, to capture or kill Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Now, the crown prince viewed Khashoggi as a threat to the kingdom and broadly supported using violent measures, if necessary, to silence him. So to the CIA, there is no doubt that the men that murdered Khashoggi did so under direct approval of the crown prince. But today, when Khashoggi's fiance is trying to seek damages in a U.S. court, we get this. Quote, Biden administration says Saudi prince has immunity in Khashoggi's killing lawsuit. The same U.S. government that determined Mohammed bin Salman is responsible for killing Khashoggi is now saying he qualifies for immunity. 
And the argument is that this is, quote, purely a legal determination because the crown prince was named prime minister back in September. So technically, he is the head of government. But he's been the de facto leader for as long as I can remember. And by Saudi Arabia's own standards, this move is unprecedented. The title of prime minister has traditionally rested with the king. Even more curious, MBS received the title three days before the Justice Department had to respond in court whether he should be granted sovereign immunity or not. So was this a gimmick, one that worked? The fact is the crown prince is now one step closer to being granted immunity. A judge will ultimately decide, and that determination is being helped along by an administration that once promised to treat the kingdom of Saudi Arabia as a pariah. Joining me now to discuss this is Karen Atiyah. She's a Washington Post columnist on international affairs and Jamal Khashoggi's former editor. Karen, it is great to see you again. Uh, thank you for making time for us tonight. Let me just start out by getting your reaction to all of this. How are you feeling this evening? Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know how many more um, synonyms I have for uh, feeling like this is a, another betrayal um, by the U.S. government, by the Biden administration. Um, and I've been speaking to um, many of us who were involved all those years ago trying to advocate um, for justice, not just for Jamal, but again, um, Jamal's uh, murder stood for a lot. It was a symbol about our willingness as, as a nation, as a country, to stand up for those who find themselves under the, the grind of authoritarian governments, right? And right now, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm, um, I'm frankly, frankly, feeling as a journalist and as someone who has, you know, also been a, an outspoken critic of the um, of Mohammed bin Salman um, and uh, and you know just this whole system. Frankly, I think we're we are all a lot less safe for this. It sends the message that you know all a, a country has to do is kind of play around with a couple mm. of titles, um, and then you know they're entitled to cover um, from um, from the United States if they're our so-called ally. And um, so I think this this just sends the message to human rights activists, to journalists, and frankly to to U.S. residents and citizens um, that our government is willing to put the status quo, willing to put money, and willing to put um, access and power and dollars over our lives. And it's a it's a really um, sickening feeling. Let me ask you about that for a moment, the, the title change here. It's pretty clear and obvious to people who track this um, that the Saudi leadership gave the crown prince the title of prime minister to force the U.S. to take a stance on the immunity question. And that certainly played well into the legal argument that the administration is making in this case. The thing is, it worked. Were you expecting that? least at the very least if the uh, if they were going to, to play along with with this circus I would have hoped that they would have um at least even tried to make it um seem like it wasn't just a cynical ploy to to help our again our, our so-called allies get get a jail out of free card literally um and for a, a long time obviously this is also coming off of the heels of um, the Turkish uh, courts basically wiping their hands of the case. Um, this is coming off of the heels, obviously, of that infamous fist bump um, between Biden and um, MBS and Riyadh uh, earlier this summer. 
And so, you know, the, the message again that's that's being sent is, um, yeah, you know, our, our friends, we can all conspire um, together to make sure that crimes and and heinous um, acts go go unpunished. And for a long time, um, even though there were those roadblocks um, in terms of uh, the Turkish courts and all that, there was always still a, a one last hope in the legal system, in the U.S. legal system. Is there that, still? Um, that it's made it a lot harder, obviously, right. as you said in your, your intro, it's still up to a, to a judge to decide. And I think it's actually extremely important and commendable that um, Hatija Jamal's fiance um, basically pulled out all the stops and went to these lengths to get justice again, not just for Jamal, but for all the dissidents um, and, and and those standing up for. So I, I think it is important that we use every single tool at our disposal to make the cost of authoritarian higher. Um, but yes, of course, and, and I agree with her, what she said on Twitter today, it, it feels almost as if Jamal was killed yet again today with this decision. Yeah, heartbreaking uh, situation that we find ourselves in yet again. Uh, Washington Post columnist and Jamal Khashoggi's former editor, Karen Atia, thank you so much for making time for us this evening. Thank you, Armin. Lawrence O'Donnell is coming up in just a few moments, but we have one more thing to tell you tonight. Stay with us. In the weeks and months leading up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol, we know that social media sites such as Twitter and Facebook were used to disseminate misinformation and disinformation. Knowing what I know about how misinformation spreads, I think it was pretty obvious that there was going to be a massive push to support a narrative of a stolen election. A new documentary from executive producer Trevor Noah and director Rebecca Gitlitz explores how we got to that violent day in this time of polarization. And it takes a look at the role that both traditional media and social media played in the dissemination of that disinformation. I had the privilege of contributing to the film as well. Uh, you can watch Split Screen Sunday night at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC. It'll also be streaming on Peacock. That does it for us tonight. Rachel will be here on Monday. that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.